I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if you like this podcast, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, I'm talking with Janitra Taylor of Mocafi. Mocafi is a banking and technology company specifically focused on providing services to unbanked and underbanked people of color in an effort to positively impact the wealth gap overall. Mocafi offers a prepaid MasterCard, FDI-insured bank accounts, a money management app, credit building, bill payment, and personal wealth coaching. And this week, the conversation Janitra and I are having includes who's underbanked and unbanked and what's the scale or the size of that problem, barriers to getting better financial services, how tech innovation can make a difference on that, how Mocafi is approaching those challenges, some of the successes that they've seen so far. And of course, we're talking about the future and their dreams for what this all looks like when they've accomplished Mocafi's initial goals and they start to set new ones. So stay tuned. After the interview with Janitra, we've also got some in-person events going on at DCA, one recently in London that happened a few weeks ago, and then one that's happening this upcoming week in San Francisco. In fact, maybe it's happening as you're listening to this. It's scheduled for April 11th. I want to talk about what people are saying on a variety of issues that we've been talking with DCA members about lately, creative use of data and alternative data sources, early efforts with artificial intelligence and machine learning, the intersection of social media, marketing and commerce, and subscription programs, among several other things. I'll talk about that after the interview with Janitra. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata, the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. Janitra, thank you so much for joining us on Commerce Code. Totally excited to have you here for this conversation. Where are you joining us from? Hey, Dan. It's great to be here. I'm actually joining you from Philadelphia today. We're excited to talk about Mocafi and what you guys are doing. And so I'm going to phrase it one way and then ask you to kind of explain some some stuff for the audience. So Mocafi is innovating to do financial inclusion. That's part of the mission, reaching underbanked and unbanked. And I just want to start with sort of definition of terms. So how do you think about, how do you guys define underbanked? When we look at underbanked, underbanked is typically defined as a population of individuals who may have already had traditional banking relationships, but they're not able to take full advantage of those. And they're not able to take full advantage a lot of times because of the different bank fees and overcharge fees, or there's not the right products and services really allotted to these underbanked individuals. Other examples of how we define underbanked as well is look at people who may not have a good credit score and it's very, very low because they haven't had any credit building to date. And then also, as you think about that, when you think about these individuals and how they work today, a lot of them don't have direct deposits. So these are the individuals who are working hard, but then they're taking their check and cashing it at the local check cashing place. And a lot of times we tend to find this population to be in the lower middle income threshold today. 
so the LMI threshold. And that's when we look at these individuals, that's how we're defining them and they can fall into different buckets. So what's the sort of size of that group? So like how many people are we talking about in that underbanked category? So when we look at unbanked and underbanked together, and that's kind of how we size it out here, there's 63 million Americans today who are considered unbanked or underbanked, which is astonishing (laughs) to me, especially uh, someone who has had a whole career in financial services. So that's insane when you see 63 million today. And when you also start to break that down, there's 45 million Americans that do not have a credit score, no credit score at all. And then you see 47% of Black households are actually considered unbanked or underbanked. So that's almost half the population for Black and Brown in America today that are considered unbanked or underbanked. So it's it's very sizable. It's it's huge. And hopefully uh, we can get those numbers down. So the other question is, I guess, one of movement. I mean, I immediately go, and just to commentary, like I immediately go to the, you, know, you, you tell a story of somebody who gets a check, let's say, and they take it to the check cash in place. And I go, oh man, what a what an opportunity from a whole bunch of perspectives to just to fix that, right? Like it feels like there's a big opportunity to fix that. But I want to start with the backstory. Like if you take the last five or 10 years, is this problem getting bigger? Is that group of Americans growing that are underbanked or unbanked? Is it stable? Is it getting smaller? It's definitely getting bigger. And that's really as we look at our the economic conditions we're in, right? So you've had in the past few years a pandemic where people were forced to stay at home, where individuals were not able to work. So that now you've yeah. increased that piece. You also, as you know, we're dealing with inflation, right? Inflation is insane today. So that individual who is cashing that check, I'm sure a very large portion of that check is going towards paying for their groceries. And groceries have doubled, you know, today. I know my Myself looking at what I used to get for $100 is not the same as I can get today, which is crazy. And then as you've seen in the market today, we have seen tons and tons of layoffs, just thousands and thousands and thousands. So all these different economic conditions kind of hitting all at the same time has definitely increased this number that we're seeing out here of Americans who are considered unbanked and underbanked. No question. And things have been in that sense, you know, like on the ground, right, just visibly harder. And we watch these percentages. Those of us in the industry, right, of course, are at least paying attention to some extent of the month to month, you know, what's the year over year inflation, et cetera. But then there's also just the practical experience of going to the grocery store. So if we're in the underbanked or unbanked category, and like, look, the kind of people who are listening to Commerce Code are not, I'm thinking. And so we haven't maybe experienced this. And this is my next question for you. It's like in practice, in life, what's the big barrier? I'm underbanked. I need better financial services. There's no way I should be paying, you know, extra fees and whatever barriers are involved in doing check cashing and such. But what what makes it hard for me to get out of that? I think the first thing is that individuals who are underbanked or unbanked, they don't even know it. They don't even know what their credit score is because they don't know that they should know that, right? I think in most recent years, you've seen financial institutions trying to provide that service, right? But a lot of people don't understand what is the credit score? What is it used for? How can I build it up? So then how would I know that I identify as, you know, this underbanked or unbanked individual? So I think the first piece is just one, understanding, you know, that you are in this category. And I think the second piece is then knowing where to find these resources and support, right? And there's several different resources that they'll need. It's not just getting the right banking products, but it could be, you know, needing credit help. So who's a good advisor to talk to that can help you with this? Is there someone in a community? Is there a nonprofit organization that can help you with these? 
And then I think the other big barrier that, you know, definitely I I see being on the other side of this is that there's a mistrust between individuals who are unbanked and underbanked today with banking institutions. And so we've seen this mistrust where they don't trust banks necessarily. We've seen it in recent years. I think with the recent events uh, that just happened in the banking institutions over the past two weeks, we're seeing, you know, that uprise again where people are pulling their money out of banks and keeping it, you know, back at home, I guess, right in that shoebox <laughs> on top of the refrigerator like they used to do back in the day. And then I think in general, traditionally, this population was overlooked by a lot of the larger financial institutions, right? Because traditionally, larger institutions, because they're so big, they have to make sure that their products, their services, the way they speak to individuals, that is done at a mass market, right? Because they need to be able to reach a majority of the population out there. Well, this population today, right, you need to be able to provide the proper education, the right resources, the right products and services. And so when you see different advertisements today where it's like, you know, you need a 725 to get your like dream home, right? That's not what we need to do to speak to this population. We should be instead providing them with education on, hey, do you understand, you know, why your credit score is important, right? Do you understand why you should get direct deposit or ask your employer for direct deposit? Do you understand that you should get a credit card to start helping you with building that credit score, but you should only put on things on there that you know you can pay for and that you shouldn't have revolving credit over 30%. That's how these individuals will need to be spoken to. And we just have not seen that in the past years. But I think a lot of people are trying to change that in this industry, which which is good. It seems like a big opportunity. And I'm going I'm to turn to Mochify in a second and just see how you guys are kind of taking that. But I'll just, I'll make an analogy in something I've, I've worked in kind of on the nonprofit side and a little bit, which is you look at things that certain people take for granted. And again, probably a lot of the listeners commerce code, which is, hey, you know, college is a great thing to do or university is a great thing to do. But, you know, if you're coming from a certain culture, so for example, you're a first generation immigrant, depending on the country that you're from, it may just not be on your radar screen. And your point about trust or mistrust or whatever, you may actually have, you know, where you're coming from and within the sub community that you live in, a feeling of, you know, not necessarily a lot of trust for the idea of college and, and the institutions themselves. And then, you know, it costs money. And so then I think you end up with these these challenges where maybe to your point, we don't even try to communicate with folks, you know, at that level because we just assume like everybody knows that going to university is a great accelerator for you and will make your family better off in the long run. Well, you know, if that's not the cultural assumption with a young person that has a lot of potential and capability, then it may never really get started. And I think you're saying the same thing about banking, and I totally get it, right? You're asking people to <laughs> to take their money and give it to someone else, right? There's a basic sense in which that, in which you could see that it would be maybe natural for somebody to be like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Yes, 100% correct. And it's, you know, I have a trust for banking, but that's because I, I grew up in the industry. And I think the other piece, too, is that a lot of these conversations around wealth and being able to save, that really starts at the family table, right, yep. for dinner. And so that's the other piece, right? So I go back to when I was younger and I had these conversations with my family. I watched my mom save to buy her first home. And I remember her putting aside money. I remember her saying, hey, you know, we can't go out every weekend like we used to because we're saving for this. And so I was taught that at a very early age, the importance of money, how to use it responsibly. And then I saw my mom buy another house. And then I saw my mom take that information and also, you know, start a business, right? But I saw that at an early age. 
not everyone in this community in this population of unbank or underbake has that, right? Because you have people in this population who are probably working several part-time jobs just to be able to pay their bills. They're truly living check by check. So they do not, you know, even have the means to save or they're not even understanding like, hey, if I just saved you know, $50 a paycheck, that that builds up over time, right? They're just constantly going. And so I think that also goes back to just bringing that back home to being able to understand that culture aspect of this. Yeah. As you talk, I realize that I think I'm right when I say that the traditionally the benefits of the formal banking sector have been longer term benefits, right? So if somebody's saying, how does this help me this week? It's probably harder to explain that than it is to say, how does this help me this year or this this decade, you know, or with my children or the next generation? And, you know, and that's a tough, again, back to the analogy of education and universities and stuff. It's like, how does it help me this week to not take a job, sit in a classroom and pay somebody else so that I can do all that? Right. It's like, well, it's pretty hard to explain that. Right. But in the long run, it can be transformative. But that requires a lot of trust that the system will kind of work out. So Mochify, so turning to, as I said, we're obviously talking to you because we think you're really interesting in what you're doing. And so I just want to start with, I'll start with the super basics and listeners can't sort of see it written down, but it's M-O-C-A-F-I and the M, C, and F are capitalized, if that makes sense. So let's start with the name. It must mean something. What's the mission? What's the name? Tell us about that. Yes, yes. So Mochify is short for Mobility Capital Finance, but we do call ourselves Mochify. And it was founded in 2016 by our founder and CEO, Awole Coxiam. So he was a former big time executive in the industry working for one of the bigger banks. And really just saw, you know, just from being able to climb throughout the ranks there, he really saw that, hey, we're still not addressing this issue today with the wealth gap. And so he made it his mission to create Mochify and to help lay the financial infrastructure for closing America's wealth gap that we see today. Our goal at Mochify is to do this by creating an innovative banking platform that brings together low-cost services so that make sure we kind of avoid those fees that our customers tend to see with others. And then also not only just providing those services, but then also allowing access to credit building and financial education programs so they can continue on their growth and their platform. And then as we start to grow, right, we definitely started to have um, different values here. And we have key values, those being around one, being able to center around creating paths to economic security. We are very close-knit to the different communities we're in, so we like to drive community economics as well. And then we also want to cultivate a culture of innovation here as well. And we like to also make sure that we have our products and services, but they literally should tie to our clients' needs. We don't want to just make products and services and say, yep, we have these just like our competition. Instead, we want to take our time, listen to our customers, understand who they are, create these profiles and personas about them, and then make sure we have the right products and services that align for them. When you think about products and services then and, and paths to economic security, just an example or two of kind of what are the main ways product service that Mochify helps to just provide those financial products that, that would be kind of hard to access otherwise? Like what's the, what's the on-ramp that you're using? One thing about Mochify, and this is the thing I probably love most, is that it's a true graduation program that we have here. So we work directly with the government, municipalities, and nonprofit organizations to help them disperse funds. 
So think about it as if you today experience something in your neighborhood or your city or state where a hurricane hits you all, right? And you need to get, you know, the government will release funds to people who have been impacted. So just imagine if I'm unbanked or underbanked, how is the government getting that money to me? They need a way to get it to you because you don't have a direct deposit or different things like that. So they will work with us here at MochaFi. MochaFi would take that list of the impacted customers who don't have access to get the disbursements. And we will provide that access through our disbursement card, which we call um, IRC here, as well as provide the customer with a actual app as well to track you know, their spend. And so that's the first way you know, that we truly start to engage with the underbanked and unbanked. And then over time, right, because we start to know who these customers are, we host on our block events within the different communities to get to know who customers are. We then introduce to the customers a mobile banking product. And that mobile banking product is no fee, right? And it's a true demand deposit account. And so it provides the customer with a debit card as well as a mobile app that will come with other little enhancements and engagements to that from a product and features. And the goal is to continue to watch that customer over time. And then we like to partner with them and put them onto a different product of ours that helps them with being able to track their spin. It actually simulates credit building for them and then provides them with education and tools to help them start building that credit over time and then hopefully start getting to some of their goals of maybe owning a home or purchasing a car. That's just the different things we do here. And like I said, I really love it because it takes someone from being unbanked and underbanked who couldn't even access funds that were allotted for them to helping them move up, graduate from getting a true banking account to moving up into credit building and hopefully, you know, almost graduating of sorts, right, to getting that long-term goal of theirs of either a house or a car. And so that's what makes us special because we have this access to customers and we're making sure that our products and services are truly addressing their needs. You mentioned getting up to the point of having a house or a car. And I, I was thinking about transportation, you know, as you were talking at a very ground level, again, like one of the things, if you if you think of the banking system in its traditional form, frankly, still today, but if you were to go back a few years, one of the barriers surely was people would just say like, look, I don't, I'm not in a position to be getting physically to the bank all that often because, you know, transportation limits. And at this point, smartphone penetration is, is high. And I actually have a question about that, too, in terms of what people tend to have and wh- whether it works well for them. But, you know, what you guys are doing in part is virtualizing a lot of this stuff so that folks don't have to think in terms of like, oh, yeah, I need to be able to physically get to a bank in order to do all this. I'm guessing that they don't really have to at all and that they've got in their hand a platform that lets them kind of do everything. It's just a matter of getting it to happen. So that's a comment. And then the question, I guess, is so it is extremely helpful if these folks have got a smartphone, but I think smartphone penetration is really high in the U.S. right now. Is, am I right about that? And is that basically like do the smartphones all work well enough and it all, it's all happening? Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely a portion of it where it is on your smartphone. So you can actually have, you know, your card on the smartphone through our app. But at the same time, that's why we also ship out actual physical cards, right? Because you start to think about the population of unbanked and underbanked. These could be individuals who do not have access to this cellular service or have access to being able to purchase a smartphone. So we like to make sure that we can still get disbursements out to these customers. And so we do that by making sure we still ship out plastics for these populations. So what would you say, and I think I know the answer now based on what you've said, but what do you think is the area of biggest success so far in the work that Mochafi has done? 
I think the biggest piece that we've done really, really well at is just our partnerships, right, with the municipalities and different states and, and officials because they trust us to come in and help provide for the different people who live in their communities. And so I think we've done just a really great job at that and expanding our market, you know, to several different states. And then I think the other piece that we really do good at is just our different community outreach programs. So today we have on our block events throughout the course of the year, there are any communities where we actually bring out these customers and we speak with them directly. Sometimes we bring in different influencers as well that are from the community that might have made it out the community to come in and speak to them. And it's a really positive event. And at this event, we also will provide disbursements as well, depending on the type of event our people qualify for and whatnot. And so I think to date, we've done a really, really great job at building those partnerships and making them really strong, not only with, you know, the municipalities, but also within the community directly with the individuals impacted. I mentioned the idea of an on-ramp before, you know, for folks that were underbanked. And this is, I mean, it's such a great device that you're able to, you know, come in at this, at sort of at a moment, right? Like an, an event-based almost. And, you know, this thing has happened, that's a challenge, and then you're able to turn it into a great, a great growth opportunity. So on the other side, if you think about challenges or things that are hard, what would you say is an area that you're still growing in or that you're trying to get on top of still? Yeah, I think that the area is as we move through that graduation program, right, doing a really good job at converting those users over from disbursements to you actually using mobile banking or using credit tools. So we do a great job at getting them in the door initially, but we want to do a better job at converting them to use these products that are really going to help them and provide good services to them. And so as we start to look at it, it's like making sure our product and services that we provide are on par with our competition today. And the other piece of that too, and I, I just actually had this conversation with someone is that we are not just competing with other financial service institutions with our apps. We're actually in competition with every single app on that customer's phone because we all now are kind of accustomed to what we think great is within app experiences and products. And so we expect them all to work the same or very close to that. And so we're doing a lot of good work right now, just, you know, collecting information and feedback from customers on how we can enhance our products and services to meet their needs. And then the goal is to make a lot of different changes to our products and services. So I'll close with the aspirational question, which is, what's the dream? So if it's 2025, it's 2030, you got the end of year, you know, party going on at Mocafi, you're dancing on the table. What's the thing that you will have accomplished that's going to make you feel like, yeah, this is, but this has been worth all the all the work. I think the thing that will make us really, really happy here is being able to see that decrease from 63 million Americans unbanked and underbanked. If we can truly penetrate that and create the right products and services to get that number down, all day I'm on top of the table dancing and, and happy and excited. And then seeing those individuals move from underbanked and unbanked to like the traditional where they really should be today, whereas they have these homes, they have their cars. Maybe they are starting to think about, you know, going back to school and making a better education and saving for that as well. So I think it's if we can truly get that 63 million down, that will make us really happy. And that will also allow us to say that we helped truly close the wealth gap that we see here in America. That will make us happy in 2030. I love that for a ton of reasons, but one of them too is that, you know, not everybody has the luxury of being in a space where it's as measurable as that. Like, I think you guys will know whether you've had an impact, like you will know, and you'll know what the impact looks like for a lot of reasons. And, and that's exciting. I see a ton of opportunity here, both for you and for your customers and look forward to following the Mochafi story in the future. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I mean, we're excited to always talk about Mochafi. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. 
Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. I'm still thinking about some of the things that Janitra and I talked about, lots of different connections I can make to conversations that are ongoing these days in the Digital Commerce Alliance, and I will get to all of that. But I want to tell a little story that I think is a sharp illustration of how much value some, what we take for granted is pretty basic technology can create, especially when it's telecom and tech related. We live in the world of communication and telecommunication so much that I think we often take it for granted. So here's a story. I was, for reasons I won't try and describe, deeply involved in a program that provided and still provides agricultural loans to farmers in very rural Tanzania. And the mechanics of doing a program like that simply overwhelm the possibility of having the program be even a break-even proposition, let alone a profitable proposition, in the following way. You put out however many thousand dollars worth of loans to a group of farmers in a village, and we were working with a group of maybe 20 villages or so in a rural region in central Tanzania. Even at relatively high interest rates, and even if you just sort of imagine that the repayment rates are very high, which, for the record, they tended to be, the cost of physically getting out to the villages, in many cases, alone, even like one trip, would wipe out the total value of the interest payments in the, in the loan portfolio. Because mechanically, you needed to get at least one human, maybe more, into definitely a four by four, although I once did it in a minivan, and that was pretty impressive, if I say so myself, into a four by four. And it's going to take you a couple hours if everything goes well to get there, and very often you couldn't figure that you'd be able to get there and back in a single day. Gas alone, let alone repairing these things and everything else, just wiped it all out. So it was fundamentally a sort of subsidized program. And while that's okay, it's not the healthiest thing. The healthiest thing is to figure out how to have a program that stands on its own, that grows on its own, that serves more farmers over time, increases agricultural yields, all of that. And to a great extent, That's been able to happen simply because cell phones have gone from being common to ubiquitous and coverage has gotten a little bit better. And so in contexts like that, you're able to go from spending both in human time and then in real money repairing Toyotas and paying for gas, a program that absolutely can't come close to operating in a healthy way to a program that, you know, with text back and forth and telecommunications and that kind of stuff increasingly ubiquitous, no matter how remote the area is, all of a sudden you've got access to banking and financial services. I won't get into the details of why this is massively transformative to people, but just trust me, in that context anyway, it definitely is because, well, crops go better with fertilizer and things like that. That's an extreme example. And I share it only because I think it's easier to wrap my head around how powerful and transformative technological innovation can be when you're talking about access to banking. Because Fundamentally, financial services, while on the one hand, it has been sort of arguably the most profitable business in, in, in the world for the last, I don't know, five, seven hundred years, something like that. On the other hand, there's a basic aspect of banking that is picking up nickels in front of a steamroller, as we sort of learned with SVB and everything else that's happened lately. There are just some fundamental structural risks 
that are lurking. That's the steamroller. But on the front end, to even get into the baking business at all, to be able to even try and pick up those nickels in front of the steamroller, you've got to lower the basic cost of involvement to the point where it's possible to sort of do it at a break-even or hopefully a profitable level so the whole thing can grow and it can spread. Technology is what makes that possible where you don't have immediate access to physical bank branches and that kind of stuff. And that really describes you know, an awful lot of people in the world, certainly everybody that's not urban. And as I think Jeannie Tran and I got to in the conversation, to people that are urban. So you're sitting there, you're in Chicago or Minneapolis or wherever you are, Washington, D.C. Takes a while to get to work, takes a while to get back. And another bus trip with maybe a connection to get to the bank, it just it literally is not possible. And this is one of the reasons why people don't even engage. Building out the ability to work with people in a way that's validated and that we can trust and that's going to function on increasingly ubiquitous and affordable smartphones is just a tremendous thing just for human beings. And it's only going to be accessible to a large number of people if it also works as a commercial matter, because that's why things grow. One of the characteristics of nonprofits that economists study and sort of talk about is why do they tend not to grow? Uh, it's not too hard to sort of figure that all out. But if you think about it, it's not the path of a typical college or university, for example, to get bigger and bigger, even if it's very successful. Nonprofits don't tend to grow. It's okay for something to be structured as a not-for-profit, but the basic underlying point is it's actually really healthy for there to be some profit in the system so that the thing can grow and it can serve more people as long as it's done well. So I wish all of that for Mochafi, that it will grow and that it will prosper and that it will serve more and more people because I think that's the goal and that's what we all want to see. I want to then connect this idea of a fundamental technology accelerating things and making things work better and more accessible to more people from something we're very familiar with, which I've been talking about telecommunications and smartphones, through to something that at this point I think it's fair to say nobody's fully familiar with because it's just kind of cracked open the door and walked into the room and we're all starting to get to know, which is artificial intelligence in its newest incarnation. It's a little bit creepy to say it that way, but I also maybe not the wrong way to say it. Artificial intelligence. So I want to talk a little bit about that and some of the other conversations that we're having with member companies these days at Digital Commerce Alliance. So I'll start in London. In early March, DCA had a roundtable at Collinson's headquarters and Colin Evans, the founder of Collinson, was there and, and hosted. We had 16 people from I think it was 12 or possibly 11 companies literally sitting in a perfect circle in a conference room, and we spent about four and a half, five hours talking to each other on a very sort of structured agenda of issues we wanted to knock out that day. And it was a remarkable conversation. We do those kinds of meetings under Chatham House rules, so I'm obviously not going to tell you who said anything. And I don't need to get too much into um, the particulars of what was said, but I will say thematically, we talked a lot about the evolution of data and data sets and how those get used by companies. I think of the digital commerce sector, especially when you're talking loyalty and offers and this kind of stuff, as an area where everyone is running around with an eye patch over one eye. And yet we're kind of we're kind of peeling back that eye patch a, a little bit. But we all have to sort of cooperate, right? Companies you know, kind of hold each other's hand, run around, both got an eye patch on, but they can see a little bit better and they can communicate. That's kind of how I think about the sector. Uh, maybe that's not the best image, but that's one way of thinking about it anyway. And the question is, how can we get better information? You know, how can we get ourselves to a world of good vision 
into the ability to customize all of that stuff while fully respecting and, and even further empowering the consumer in terms of their ownership of the information and the ability to permission it, et cetera. So great conversations about that stuff. Really interesting conversation about subscription models and uh, in particular what happened to be, I guess, topical. And I saw it all over London as I was walking around was that Pret. And if you don't live in a place that has Pret, I will just endorse their chocolate croissants um, and their coffee, I think. Pret is absolutely all over London and some East Coast places in the United States. And they have, at least in the UK, a subscription service where you can subscribe to coffee. I, I forget the particulars of it, but obviously it's, it includes certain things, probably excludes some others. But you pay a monthly amount and you can go, I guess, get as much coffee as you want. Some discussion of, of aspects of that that have gone well, aspects that haven't gone that well. But it's it's sort of a, an outer perimeter example of something that we see a lot of people really interested in these days, which is, well, this consistent revenue stream and that sort of locked in customer relationship looks very attractive. And so people are taking the idea of subscription that, of course, has been foundational in, in many areas of business for a long time and starting to say, well, I don't know, could we apply it to you know, coffee? Could we apply it to some other area where it's maybe not the conventional mode? Now, good conversations about that. Of course, we could all recall back that, you know, we used to subscribe to milk, right, 100 years ago. So th this stuff is not totally new. It's just a question of, you know, is it the right thing right now? And then how does it connect into the digital economy and into our relationship with customers? Well, with that as maybe a tee up for us as an organization at DCA, it kind of warmed up all of the topics, I think, these days in terms of what we were hitting in the London meeting. We turned then to this coming week, as I record this a few days away, we have the April 11th DCA Summit coming up in uh, San Francisco. And I want to just talk about some stuff I'm excited about in that meeting because it's going to be absolutely great. Our meetings are intended to be look each other in the eye and talk to each other. I think of it as sort of, yes, there's lots of people in the room, but the conversation should feel one-on-one. -on -one. That's what we're trying to do because we're all part of an ecosystem where we're working together every day. And so a few things we're going to see conversation there in the morning on social activation strategies. That is to say, how does the fact that you, let's say you're a large organization, you have employees, they are all on social media. They are interacting with your product with, they know your product better than anybody else. And they are in many ways your best advocates. How can you make that work for you? And how does that work in the context of the kind of data that we want to permission from, from customers, permission from employees, how do we carefully navigate and manage all of that. That's a powerful thing, but also a very careful thing, something that we have to really think about. And so looking forward to that conversation, that is a presentation that I've just described by Augio and a company that they recently acquired called Brand Networks. And so looking forward to that conversation, that's David Crystal, the CEO of Augio, is going to talk. And then Jeremy Frick is the chief technology officer there from Brand Networks. Then we're going to turn our attention to, it's not the elephant in the room, but it's the inchoate robot overlord in the room, maybe. The promise of artificial intelligence in crafting hyper-personalized offers. We've got a couple of sessions where we're going to touch on artificial intelligence from a few different angles because it's just, uh, it's a very current thing. And I think it's going to be helpful for people to get their hands dirty talking to each other and then playing around with a little bit. So we have Jill Moser, who's the SVP of Global Loyalty uh, and offers at MasterCard. 
And then Scott Weller, who is their senior advisor for M&A and strategic partnerships there at MasterCard, both of them coming with both perspective, but also a lot of experience in the space generally. And then I think Scott uh, in particular with some sort of technicians hat on, on the question of artificial intelligence. And so excited about that conversation. Then we're going to turn to uh, offers at the crossroads, high friction risks, losing a generation. That's a bit of a shift of gears, I think, in terms of topic, but I will connect it back to AI in a second. So the idea of that presentation and that session we're going to spend together is looking at the friction that is baked into card-linked offers and related uh, sort of things that we do in digital commerce. Uh, The presenters there are going to be Joe Fitzgerald, who's the CEO of a company called Definitive. And then Taylor Price is the chief experience officer there. And as I said, the title is High Friction Risks Losing a Generation. Uh, The generation we're talking about in particular is the Gen Z sort of entering into the, the height of their disposable spending powers. And the fact that on the one hand, you've got all this progress and exciting things happening in digital commerce and the promise of artificial intelligence, et cetera. But on the other hand, there are some aspects of the way that we still transact, whether it's offer activation or some aspects of basic transactions these days still that feel decades and decades old. And that we may be moving into a world where we have a generation coming in now that just says, I'm not going to do the traditional thing. I'm not going to do the traditional bank account. I'm not going to do the traditional approaches to financial services because they honestly feel alien, right? It's like riding a horse to school at this point to think about the mechanics of opening a bank account by, you know, walking to your local branch. It's just otherworldly compared to the rest of the online experience. So we want to talk about that and talk about the underlying issue of friction in digital commerce and card linked offers. Afternoon conversations talking about the process of innovation through A-B testing and experiments, test and learn process. We've got a couple of senior people from Cardlytics coming to uh, lead that session and that conversation with the group. So Caroline Penn uh, is the VP of product and Kathleen Lee is a senior director for um, FI partnerships there, both at Cardlytics. So we're excited about that. That I think goes to sort of the, both the mechanics, you know, like day-to-day, what are we actually doing in order to bring better things to customers? And then what have they learned from some of their experiences there. As you can tell, I've been in conversation with all the presenters in advance, so I kind of got a little sneak peek at what people are uh, uh, going to talk about. And then uh, a couple of presentations to close the day, one from Value Dynamics and then another finally from FIS. And so from Value Dynamics, we're going to turn back to this issue of AI and personalization and just delivering the most relevant possible user experience. And so that's a conversation with Ed Wogan, who's the SVP and Chief Merchant Officer at Value Dynamics. Value Dynamics is a Collinson company. And so we know, uh, you know, actually Ed was in fact at the uh, London Roundtable a few weeks ago. And I'm excited about that conversation because we're going to kind of come back at the AI thing from a different angle and have, I think, a what steps are next for companies in the room. That is such a fast moving space and in some ways such an accessible space that I'm excited to see what happens there because, you know, our robot overlords are just right there or on the browser right now and you can go access them and and play around. And and I'm seeing some really interesting things, as I'm sure everybody is, um, as to how people have figured out how to deploy and use these new tools like ChatGPT and, and BARD, et cetera. Finally, Cheryl Nuttall is Senior Director, Enterprise Strategy at FIS. Super impressive person. And we've had a lot of fun working with Cheryl across this year on some different things. And um, she wants to talk about this idea of engagement as a service. 
And, uh, you know, FIS obviously is providing foundational technology architecture to kind of like the the world of financial services. And I think that, you know, this is really a conversation both about what engagement is and what it looks like, but also about what is the market structure for how we bring things to market. And, you know, the idea of software as a service, something as a service, whatever, that has been, I think, transformative in terms of being able to accelerate how quickly organizations can bring really high quality experiences to consumers and engagement as a service. Uh, I'm excited to, to spend some time with Cheryl and with the group kind of working through what that means uh, in practice, because that is, I think, an area where we're going to gain speed and momentum as a sector, as an ecosystem in the way that we're able to bring value to consumers, get them excited and give them what they want faster and, and less, I think, encumbered by some of the internal processes that, that would be present, same as the analogy to software as a service versus you know hosting it yourself able to move faster because you're able to, to lean on a best-in-class provider like FAS to sort of do that stuff with you and for you to some extent and with your customers. So excited about that conversation. Overall, looking forward also to being in, in San Francisco. Some of you know from the podcast that I'm based in Minneapolis and winter is not over. It's just not. That's how it is. I saw snowflakes yesterday. I fully expect to see them again soon. I do not expect snow in San Francisco. I expect nothing but beautiful weather and great conversations with DCA members. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Commerce Code. Look forward to another one in two weeks. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.